Hey listeners, it's David from DHA with another special episode of the Conopedia podcast. This is a recording of a Q&A that we had on December 18th, 2020. Sorry about the sound quality during parts of the recording. As some of you may know, Zoom recordings can be iffy at times and the sound quality unfortunately cannot be guaranteed. But the information provided would be very helpful for those of you who are interested. In the show notes, you'll find timestamps for the specific questions that were raised during the Q&A. So I hope you have a listen. There will be new episodes of Conopedia coming up in January. So I hope you follow as well. And lastly, I wish you all a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and stay safe during these exceptional times. Welcome, welcome, welcome one and all to our DHA holiday Q&A. We're very, very excited to see everybody joining us here. We still have lots of attendees to get themselves registered into our webinar today. So we'll just start off with some welcome remarks. And I think the very first person I want to welcome here today is Lucy. We have a guest member here, Lucy. Hello, Lucy. Lucy's sitting with Melinda. I love your shirts. You guys look fabulous. So, wow, what a year it has been in the condominium industry. Who would have dreamed a year ago today that our condo industry would have turned virtual? Who would have dreamed that we would be doing all of our meetings and education and everything via online platforms? Well, wow, what a lot has changed in the past year. We've seen some very fun things at all of our virtual attendances, and I'm sure many of us have many, many interesting, fun, and perhaps crazy stories. We've also had the pleasure throughout the year of having really unique opportunities to have some unexpected attendances by some various family members with or without their pants on. Maybe a couple of young ones who also inadvertently attended their first court of appeal appearance at the age of four. It's good to start them young. You never know when you might need them on your side. And as well as all the wonderful pets and uh, other impromptu guests that we've seen throughout uh, our various virtual meetings. So hopefully Lucy will make another magical appearance a little bit later on. That's just a delight. So at the end of our session today, as you can see, we've all decided to be a little bit festive today. We're also a little bit competitive here at DHA, as you may have noticed. So we have a competition going on. At the end of our session, we're going to have a wee bit of a poll. And it'll be up to our attendees to vote on who is the most festive member at our DHA webinar here today. And if you've also joined in being festive today, you can go ahead and raise your hand at the end when our poll goes up. We'll bring you on screen as well so we can get a really fun snapshot of all of our festive partners and friends and uh, in the condo industry. So let me start off. I'm going to, as we go through all of our questions today, introduce each of our team members at that time. But I want to start off by a special thank you to Angelic Allison. Now, maybe that's a bit of an oxymoron there, but thank you, Allison, for all of your help here in getting us organized here today. Allison, you all know, is our office manager and also host extraordinaire at many of our virtual AGMs throughout the season. So I think we're just going to jump right in. We have a lot of questions to get through. We're delighted. We, uh, we maxed out our attendee list and we have a ton of questions from all of our attendees. So I think I am going to get started with the first very, very serious question we received just so that I get it out of the way. And this first serious question was compliments of Scott and it was, can you name the eight reindeer? Well, I know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, but wait, that's only eight. Hmm, I think I recall there's one reindeer not named at all. Rudolph, nice try, Scott, trick question. There's nine reindeer in Santa's sleigh, not eight. So for those of you who may have tried to do some other trick questions, don't you worry, our DHA team is on top of it all. And let's start, first of all, with some smoking hot issues with Vixen Victoria. Victoria, over to you. You're still muted, Vic. That's the catchphrase of 2020. It had to happen at least once. There we go. Over to you. (laughs) All right. So the question is, uh, tobacco smoking and odor migration to other units. We have some grandfathered smokers and one unit specifically has smoke migrating to neighboring suites. 
An engineer assessed the situation, provided a report, and made recommendations how to stop reduce smoke migration from the smokers unit to the neighbors. The estimated cost of the recommended work is about three and a half grand. Copies of that report have been provided to all parties involved. Our rules state that our smoking rule states since 2018 that grandfathered residents are responsible for all costs incurred by the corporation to prevent migration of smoke or odors from their unit to other units or the common elements. The argument coming back, no surprise here, are one, it is a building deficiency that was always that was always there and that the condo has to repair. And two, no one complained before. While in fact, this has been a problem created by two heavy smokers living in this unit for years. While, and then it goes, there's a bit of a break. While the condo offers to find a reasonable cost contractor for the work, we also stick to the need to follow the rules. Any pointers on how to make this go as smooth as possible? Thank you. All right, so the provision in your smoking rule, which states grandfathered residents are responsible for all costs incurred by the corporation to prevent migration of smoke or odors from their units to other units and the common elements uh, is in our view legally valid and a good idea to include within your smoking rule. However, this provision is subject to a precondition, namely that it assumes that any repair and maintenance obligations under the condominium's declaration have first been fulfilled. Um, in other words, uh, the condominium cannot hold, those, hold a smoker responsible for costs to prevent smoke transfer in accordance with its smoking rule if the smoker is the result or if the smoke transfer is the result of a deficiency that the condominium or an owner is responsible for repairing under the condominium's uh, declaration. So in summary, the rule is valid, but the repair obligations in the declaration take first priority. And so in your case, you have obtained an engineer's report um, containing recommendations how to stop and or reduce the smoke transfer. And so in our view, your next steps are to review the report and, and or ask your engineer to confirm whether there are common element or unit uh, defects that are contributing to the smoke transfer. You'll want to be clear on whether those defects are with respect to the common elements and or units. Um, you'll also want to be clear on whether or not the uh, recommended work is to address defects uh, or instead would qualify as, up, uh, as upgrades uh, needed to control the smoke transfer uh, because recommended upgrades would more likely be the responsibility of the smokers. Um, assuming there are defects, uh, your second next step will be to review the repair obligations uh, under the declaration to confirm who is responsible for repairing the defects. Uh, most declarations uh, that or most declarations state that the condominium is responsible for the common element defects and uh, that the owners are responsible for the unit uh, defects. Assuming this is what is stated within your declaration, the condominium will be responsible for rep repairing any defects to the common elements resulting in the smoke transfer. So uh, these defects could be uh, things like it's insufficient airflow uh, within the building, um, insufficient weather stripping on suite entrance doors, et cetera. Um, and the owner will be responsible for any defects to the units resulting in smoke transfer. So these, this could be things like inadequate seals uh, along the drywall. If, uh, if your declaration does state that uh, owners are responsible for unit or for repairing unit defects, uh, this, this may mean that the smoker and the complainant are uh, both responsible for the repairs to the units. Um, so again, the condominium cannot charge the smoker the costs to repair defects that are contributing to the smoke transfer um, uh, unless the condominiums, um, sorry, transfer the condominium and or owner are ultimately responsible for repairing uh, under the declaration. However, once those uh, defects are repaired, any further reasonable cost that the condominium incurs to prevent the smoke transfer can be charged back to the smoker in accordance with the smoking rule. Um, it may be helpful uh, for you to write to the smoker as well as any other parties involved to explain all of this, namely that the condominium condominium and owners will pay for the cost to repair defects, if any, that are contributing to the smoke transfer uh, in accordance with its obligations under the declaration, but that any further reasonable costs that the condominium incurs to prevent the smoke transfer 
will be charged back to the smoker in accordance with the condominium's uh, smoking rule. Um, by sending this communication uh, to all parties, everyone is clear on uh, what they are obligated to pay for down the road uh, should the smoke transfer continue to be a problem. Um, one last note, uh, if the engineer ultimately says that there are no common element defects, uh, you might be able to hold one or more of the owners responsible for some or all of the engineering costs. Um, this is something that can be considered once you have the engineer's uh, final com comments about any defects. Um, it's also probably a good idea to tell owners this, um, or to tell all owners and residents involved uh, that they may be held responsible for these engineering costs at the end of the day, depending upon the engineer's findings. Um, Fantastic, Victoria. Wow. Smoking, always a super hot topic. There's never enough of those going around. Hot topics, I mean, not smoking, definitely. Um, okay, so, um, well, you know, I guess if it's a smoking hot, hot chocolate, that would be a good thing. Next, we have Magical Melinda with her sidekick, Lucy. And they're going to talk about noise. And it looks like there might be some noise going on in that household. So it's very appropriate. Wild over here. So I'm going to make it quick. But the question that came in, and it, this is often one that we have uh, coming up. I've got an owner that continually complains about noise, no matter who the neighbor is. Um, what is considered normal noise? So as with most um, simple questions, the answer is it's actually harder than you think to consider what simple, what normal noise is. Um, the bottom line is that owners in a condominium are entitled to quiet enjoyment of their unit, but that doesn't mean absolute pitch perfect silence. And so um, the question is then who gets to be the judge of that? In a worst case scenario, you're going to be in front of a court with a judge deciding but if we aren't there, then it, you know, it's up to us, the people in the condominium industry, to be assessing what is reasonable in this particular condominium building. And that's the question a judge would be asking as well. So the standard is, what is reasonable? That sounds easy, right? But again, not so simple. Um, oh, I wanted to mention there's uh, often two types of noise complaints. There, We often get airborne noise complaints. So the complaint would be, I can hear my neighbor's TV, I can hear their music, or we get noise complaints about impact noise transfer. So I can hear the footsteps of the neighbor above me, um, I can hear them uh, sliding chairs across their floor. Um, the trick is with noise complaints that um, these two types of complaints are measured on different standards. There's some debate about what the standards are. And it's difficult to interpret as lay people what these standards actually are. So the, the bottom line is without an expert engineer coming in to do um, objective testing for you, it's very difficult to assess whether you've got a noise complaint, a, a real noise problem or not. But that said, there are some practical considerations that managers can think about. My biggest tip on noise complaints um, is that you can, um, you can uh, have a third party, so have the complaining owner contact a third party when the noise is happening. So bringing an independent third party in, so if you're the, the owner experiencing the noise, calling a director or calling a site supervisor to come in when the noise is happening, that person can either corroborate or refute whether there really is a noise problem or not, and they can be an objective sounding board. If you do have noise, a noise problem, there's some initial first steps you can consider. I like to refer to some of the problems as lifestyle problems, things like blaring music too loud, parties late into the night. That's a compliance issue. You can work with the offending owner um, uh, to seek their compliance. Um, it sounds crazy, but sometimes letter writing does work. Um, other considerations are using things like area rugs with um, underlay a thick underlay in the offending unit to help um, attenuate and absorb some of the sound. Sometimes we also use um, noise canceling devices in the receiving unit to help um, alleviate some of the noise concerns. The other thing, the other thing too is that um, where, where I see most often the noise complaints happening these days is where people have changed flooring. 
So particularly in older buildings, if you go from soft carpeting, soft flooring like carpeting and linoleum to a switch to tile or hardwood, we that you're going to see a noise complaint generally. It, it's very common. And so my biggest tip for boards there, particularly in um, older buildings, is that if you do want to allow floor changes on your property uh, to hard flooring, work with a sound engineer to come up with a rule that helps owners understand what type of flooring would be sufficient in terms of hard flooring to properly attenuate sound. So those are my tips um, because the bottom line is noise issues are contentious, but as long as you're doing your best to be reasonable and trying to work with the owners, um, you should be all good. Fantastic, Melinda. Thank you very much. Okay, and we're just going to keep trucking along because we have a very tight time frame today. We're going to move on to Mary Mohamedal with enforcement issues. Over to you, Mo. Thank you, Nancy. Um, so I actually have a couple of questions that I'm answering. So they both concern enforcement. So my first question is uh, with respect to uh, tenants and landlords providing documents to the condominium corporation. So the question is, uh, landlords who lease their condos are required to send the condo information about the lease and the tenants. How is this enforced? So firstly, it's important to mention that under Section 83 of the Condominium Act, landlords are required to provide information to the condominium corporation. So that includes information um, about when a unit is leased. Secondly, they need to provide information about um, regarding the tenant's name, the tenant's address, uh, the tenant's name, the owner's address, and a copy of either the lease or the renewal or the summary of lease or, or renewal, which is form five. So um, the second thing to keep in mind is that a condominium corporation is not a landlord. So when we talk about the relationship between an owner and a tenant, that is regulated by the uh, Residential Tenancies Act, but there's at the same time the requirement to comply with the conditions or the provisions of the Condominium Act. Um, with respect to enforcement, the first thing to keep uh, the first thing that we would encourage um, uh, condominium corporations uh, to consider is the fact that because these rules are already under Section 83 of the Act, we don't necessarily think that uh, condominium corporations need to pass it as separate rule. But where it would be wise to pass a separate rule is with respect to short-term rentals and short-term tenancies. So, in uh, condominiums where short-term rentals are allowed, it would be um, it, it would be a it would be a wise decision for condominiums to consider passing a rule saying that short-term rentals in the condominium need to comply with the provisions of Section 83 of the Condominium Act. Now, with respect to enforcement, um, a, a lot of condominium corporations, what they tend to do is they include a, a provision or a, a clause in the, in the owner's booklet that they provide to inform the owners that when they're leasing their unit, they need to provide uh, the required documents to the condominium corporation. So that, that is something that we've seen. Um, again, the, the first priority should always be to keep owners informed and uh, to keep owners informed and notified rather than to look to punish. So we would uh, definitely encourage, that's something that condominiums may want to consider putting um, such a clause in the owner's handbook. Um, a second thing to do would be to send regular reminders for owners who are leasing their unit to send the required documents. So we've seen cases where um, certain condominiums have a specific date by which all these documents have to be provided. So let's say if it's October 31st of the year uh, to send reminders around that time to owners to say, you know, hey, if you've, if you've leased your unit, you need to provide us these informations, um, this, this, these, uh, this information per Section 83 of the Condominium Act. Then if uh, non-compliance persists, legal counsel is happy to be involved and we would be writing a compliance letter um, to the owner um, asking them to provide the required information. Now, I would um, issue a word of caution here um, with certain recent with a recent decision that has been released in, in the case of Amlani, um, we're facing a, some uncertainties with respect to costs and with respect to the uh, to the ability uh, to the ability to recover costs for compliance letter letters without a court order but we expect that in the new year with the coming into force of the new of uh, the amendments of the condominium act that issue should also be resolved um so and then if the situation persists and it's not resolved which is in in rare circumstances um, it would require um, an application under Section 134 of the Act. So in summary for that question, um, the, the requirements are under Section 83 of the Condominium Act. 
Um, in terms of enforcing, the first thing to do would be to send regular notices to owners just to keep them informed of their obligations. And in the event that non-compliance persists, legal counsel would have to write to the non-compliant owner. Um, now, the second question I have has to do with a visitor parking. So the question is, in a condo with limited and restricted maximum restricted visitors parking so parking spots so maximum 72 hours what is the best way to enforce this rule so um with respect to visitor parking the first thing that's important to consider uh, for condominiums to consider is to have a an effective parking registration system so a registration system that allows you to keep track of how the visitor parking is being used. Um, we know that certain condominiums have a specific rule with respect to parking spaces where the outline um, for, for owners, where the outline which owner has which parking space. Um, now, because we're talking about visitor parking, the other important thing is to keep both residents and visitors notified of these conditions. So let's say in the event that you have a condo where uh, there's a maximum of seven to two hours for a parking permit. Um, we would highly encourage condominiums to include signage near their parking space to inform the visitors that you know you can only park here for up to 72 hours. If you're over, if you're overstaying or overextending your stay, um, it's at your risk and peril. Um, your you may be a, a fine may be levied, or in in extreme circumstances, your vehicle may be towed. Likewise, it's important to send regular notices to owners informing them um, about the. The requirements and the rules with respect to visitor parking. Um, once again, in in extreme circumstances or or in in circumstances where there is non-compliance that persists, legal counsel is once again happy to be involved. We've written letters um, in situations where uh, condominiums have faced um, breaches with respect to visitor parking. So um, for both of these questions with respect to enforcement, it's important to keep in mind that the objective is always to keep both owners and visitors of the condominium informed and notified and to take steps to constantly keep them updated. Um, in the event, once again, in the event of non-compliance, uh, we would be happy to get involved. Um, the last thing I will mention with respect to visitor parking is I know that certain condominiums uh, tend to outsource that uh, that job to uh, what we call parking control firms who have the authority to uh, ticket and tow. Um, that is up to the condominium, up to each individual condominium corporations to decide what works best for their particular um, condominium. So that's it, thank you. Fantastic, Mo. Thank you. I'm trying to actually make it through without anybody having to say, hey, you're on mute. I'm going to do my best. Now, I think we're running a wee 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 bit behind, but Cheryl told me that her questions are snappy and quick. So we've I, I had named Cheryl Cheerful Cheryl until I saw her today. And I think we just have to change that to curmudgeony Cheryl. So Ms. Ms. Grinch, go ahead over to you. I must say this web webinar is very stressful. It's so joyful and triumphant. So turning to my questions, uh, when defining an owner-occupied unit for the purposes of voting on a board seat reserved to represent the interests of that group, is an arrangement where, for example, a child who owns the unit in form, but in substance, it is still owned by the parents who reside there, considered to be owner-occupied or not? So Based on uh, the Condominium Act, uh, the Act confirms that an owner-occupied unit means a unit of an owner who's entitled to vote in the, with respect to the unit at a meeting to elect or remove a director where the unit is used for residential purposes and when the owner has not leased the unit within the last 60 days. However, in my view, it doesn't matter whether there's a formal lease in place or whether it's leased, licensed, rented, or however it's termed. The key is whether the unit is owner-occupied. So the registered owner would need to live in the unit to qualify as an owner-occupied unit. The intent behind this is that the owners that live in your unit have representation on the board. Um, so if there's a circumstance where there's a child who is the registered owner and they're sharing the unit with their parents, but they're traveling and not in the unit at the time, then it would still be owner occupied. But if the registered owner has a different primary address, they would not be uh, owner, the unit would not be owner occupied for the purposes of this vote, whether there's a formal lease in place or not. 
Now, I just want to add that there's a possibility that when the changes to the act come into force, uh, the def this definition might change because they're changing um, the term to non-lease unit, but we'll have to see what the wording is at that time to see if there's a change in that position. Okay, so the second question I have is, um, as the declarant is responsible to produce the audited financial statements for the period ending at the end of the month of turnover, should the declarant sign the representation letter and approve the financial statements by signing on its face? So should the declarant do this or should the board of the corporation do this? Under section 43 of the act, the declarant is delivering the audited financial statements to the board, but it's at the corporation's expense. I also note that section 66 confirms that the board is to review and approve the financial statements. So based on this, it's my view that the board would sign the representation letter since the statements are being prepared at the corporation's expense and the board in place at the time that the financial statements are provided would approve and sign the financial statements. Thank you, Cheryl. That was awesome, fantastic. And it was definitely a wee bit more cheerful than you probably wanted it to be. Uh, so next we are going to move over to Jolly Jim. Jolly Jim, you are gonna tell us a little bit about reserve funds or maybe a lot, depending on how quickly you can speak. Over to you. Exactly right, Nance. Thanks very much. Good afternoon, everyone. So as Nance said, uh, my first issue here is a reserve fund issue. And here's the question. We are making contributions to the reserve fund that are increasing with inflation over the next 15 plus years, at which time we plan to replace all windows. After that large expenditure, our current study shows a material drop in contributions to the reserve fund. Is this de decrease problematic? Have you seen this play out in real life? So I think this is a terrific question. My thanks to the questioner whom I know very well. So to begin, the basic requirement in the act is that all condominiums must plan for their reserve funds to be adequate within certain timeframes. Certainly there's, uh, currently rather, there's no definition of the term adequate in the act or the regulations. This is expected to be included in anticipated upcoming amendments to the regulations. For now though, there is pretty broad agreement that a reserve fund is considered adequate as long as the contributions to the fund don't have to be increased beyond inflation from year to year. So there is also a pretty broad argument that condominium corporations can plan for increases beyond inflation or for lump sum contributions during a three-year period following each reserve fund study. Now, this isn't exactly what the legislation says, but it is broadly accepted for the time being. So in other words, there is a pretty broad agreement that condominiums have a three-year grace period after each reserve fund study for increases or lump sum contributions to the reserve fund. And therefore, the condominiums must plan for the reserve fund to be on track after that three-year period. That's what we would consider adequate. Um, now, if I understand correctly, the question is, what if the plan shows that you can have a future drop in reserve fund contributions? Now, in my view, this is perfectly legal. There's nothing that prevents this, but it likely means that your annual contributions before the drop are higher than natural for the condominium, what I call higher than natural. I think of a natural contribution level for a condominium as a situation where the annual contributions can increase annually by inflation, and then you don't build up an excessive balance in the fund. So in other words, I think that the planned contributions are at a natural level if there is also no need for a drop in contributions of the sort described in this question. To get to the natural contribution level for the condominium, Sometimes it may be wise to consider a special assessment during a three-year grace period. That way you bump up the fund balance to a natural level and you keep the annual contributions and therefore the condo fees at a natural level for the condominium, always increasing only by inflation and avoiding any need to plan for a future drop in contributions. 
So that's the way we usually see this, where we often see this issue addressed. Now, sometimes this approach may not be practical or a political option in the particular case, but I think it's worth considering, considering any time your contributions appear to be what I call higher than natural. But again, there's nothing legally wrong with having reserve fund contributions that are higher than natural. It just means that your reserve fund is what I would call more than adequate at that time, which is why a future drop may be contemplated. There you go, Nance. Fantastic, Jolly Jim. Thank you. And I know we're going to hear more from Jolly Jim in just a few short moments. I'll be back. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, dealing with difficult people. Nobody should have to deal with difficult people during the holiday season, but Excited Emily is going to tell you what to do just in case it happens. Over to you, Emily. Fortunately, it seems like 2020 has brought out the worst in some people. So <laughs> and that might be a situation um, that we might be dealing with uh, a lot these days. So the question is regarding how to deal with a board member who may not be adhering to confidenti confidentiality requirements or perhaps behaving in a way that is aggressive or harassing in nature. Uh, so this is something that you're dealing with. There are a few things that this uh, that the board member can be reminded of. The first being the standard of care, which is found under Section 37 of the Condo Act. Uh, this set, sets out a standard that applies broadly to all actions of all members of condominium corporation boards of directors. And uh, Section 37 reads, every director and every officer of a corporation in exercising the powers and discharging the duties of office shall A, act honestly and in good faith, and B, exercise the care, diligence, and skill that a reasonably prudent person would exercise in comparable circumstances. So uh, we consider this to be sort of a general guide in, in terms of assisting board members in avoiding personal liability. Um, so this is something that you can remind that particular director of that they have a duty to act based on the standard of care. And the court has also echoed the standard of care specifically in a case that some of you might be familiar with. Uh, it's called Ballingall and CCC 111. Uh, so in particular, the court in this case highlighted that the board member who was um, being said to be acting inappropriately, that that member should not be seeking to make a board dysfunctional or promote antagonism and dissent on the board, but rather board members should be seeking to reach compromise that is in the interest of all unit owners in the context of that particular economy and community. So what we're not saying is that debate and discussion uh, shouldn't happen amongst board members. Of course, that is something that is naturally going to occur when you're working with a group of individuals. However, board members should ultimately be working cohesively and acting in solidarity when they're making final decisions for the corporation. So it, um, it's important in making those decisions, it's important for individual board members to consider how their behavior impacts not only the function of the board, but also how it impacts or may be perceived by uh, the entire condominium community. One of the ways that many boards try to get ahead of this problem um, and to ensure that all members are aware of the expectations for them as uh, board members is to review and sign the CCI Code of Ethics if this is signed, it's definitely something that you can refer to um, or just remind that individual of that they've signed this document and should be adhering to the requirements stated in the document. Uh, but regardless of whether or not this is signed, the, the code of ethics, ethics is something that is considered an industry standard. So it's something that can definitely be referred to in any case. Uh, now, if we're talking specifically about confidentiality, of course, Maintaining confidentiality is extremely important, and it, it is something that falls under the standard of care required for um, board members before and as well as after they uh, no longer are board members, they still have a duty to, to maintain confidentiality of any issues discussed while they were on the board. Um, disclosure of confidential information not only breaches Section 37, that standard of care that I mentioned, it is also not in the interest of the corporation. So sharing confidential information can often lead to divisiveness uh, among the directors and ultimately can be harmful to the entire condominium community. The key, of course, is for board members to appear unified in their conduct and decision-making, uh, keeping in mind the standards that I've mentioned, and do, in doing so, they are serving the best interests of the corporation. 
Now, lastly, in some cases, an individual board member's behavior may rise to the level uh, to be considered harassment. There are certain statutory provisions that the board can rely on when dealing with situations like this. Specifically, um, under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, this act defines workplace harassment as engaging in a course of vexatious comment or conduct against a worker in a workplace that is known or ought reasonably to be known to be unwelcome. So the board, of course, has a duty to ensure that the condominium community is a harassment-free environment. Um, all corporation staff, employees, property managers, contractors, and including directors would be considered workers in, in, in these circumstances for the purposes um, of the act. Uh, additionally, beyond that, harassing behavior can also be considered a violation of Section 117, depending on the, um, the degree of the pattern of behavior. And it can raise serious, serious concerns with respect to physical and emotional safety and security of corporation representatives who are subject to it. So this is, all of these things are things that can be brought up uh, to the individual board member who may be causing an issue. And ultimately, at the end of the day, if they still act in a way that is harassing um, and breaching the standard of care, you can always reach out to us. Fantastic, Emily. Thank you. And we had a little question, uh, not a little question, actually an important big question uh, from Thomas in the chat directly related to your topic. What can be done about a former board member sharing documents with owners and residents that they obtained while on the board? Is this considered a breach of confidentiality? I think it's safe to say that the, all of the uh, provisions that Emily just spoke about would apply equally to you once you are no longer a board member. You still have continued duties of confidentiality. And so if necessary, you can uh, write the individual a letter or obtain assistance from legal counsel to write them a letter as well. So next we're going to go and I see we do have another couple of questions coming up and we'll try and see if we can get to those as we go through. For now, we're going to move on to Nutty Nicole talking about fees for rental units. Over to you, Nicole. Thanks, Nancy. Hi, everyone. Yes, our next question has to do with um, renting units. The question is, some condominiums have a large number of rental units, which increases costs to the corporation with items such as maintenance of common areas, garbage removal, etc. Can condominiums charge a fee to owners who rent out their units? Great question, thank you. Uh, the short answer is no, you can't. Condominiums cannot charge a fee purely for renting units. Essentially, this has the effect of changing the proportion of common expenses that the unit is responsible for, which can't be done. This um, kind of fee has been rejected by court for that reason. Um, what options may be available, though, to address these increased costs associated with the turnover um, and the increased activity from rentals are other fees, such as a move-in and move-out fee, which would be a one-time fee charged at move-in and move-out um, to cover the costs associated with putting an elevator on service. Or there's an administrative fee that may be available um, to cover the costs of updating records. These types of fees, um, it's important to keep in mind, have to be associated with a particular cost incurred as a result of the rental. It's not just purely because the owner is deciding to rent their unit, but it's to cover a specific cost that has been incurred as a result. Um, another thing to keep in mind when discussing these kind of fees would be whether it's appropriate to charge. So, it has to be, again, related to an actual cost, so make sure that you are actually incurring these costs. And maybe consider the frequency and duration of the rental. So is your condominium facing the situation of short-term rentals, or do you have one unit that's being rented for long-term? Those kind of considerations should be taken into account. And that's it. Thank you, Nicole. That's fantastic. And I just put a little bit of a note up there to all of our panelists and attendees. We will be uploading this as a podcast later on. And I know we're having a little bit of a sound issue for some of our uh, attendee or uh, some of our microphones here. So we'll be clearing that up too, because we have a fantastic editor, David, who's able to make our sound a little bit better for us. So we'll make sure that that is all corrected for our podcast. In the meantime, we are over to joyful Jessica. Oh, talking about a not so joyful topic, liens. Over to you, Jess. Thanks, Nancy. Okay, so we did receive two questions about how condos should deal with arrears of common expenses and registration of liens during the pandemic. 
Um, as we all know, this year has been incredibly difficult for many people and many owners in our condominium communities have lost jobs or their sources of income this year, which might make it difficult for them to make their monthly payments to their condos. So we were asked whether condos should be registering liens against owners who may be struggling to make payments or pay their bills and how condos should go about registering liens against an owner uh, who's in arrears during COVID-19. So we do certainly recognize this is a difficult and delicate situation for all involved, but unfortunately condos do have a legal obligation to treat all owners the same and must still act to preserve their rights if these are not paid on time. So in other words, owners do still have an obligation to pay their condo fees when they come due and condo corporations are still legally required to register liens within the, uh, the legislative time frame if these are not paid. Um, in these difficult times, you know, it's easy to forget that the condo fees paid by owners are used uh, in the day-to-day -day operations of a condo. So in many cases, they can't be put off. This includes costs for utilities, insurance premiums, salaries for workers, and if fees are not collected from the owners, the condos simply cannot pay their bills and other third parties such as employees can be directly impacted. So this obviously leaves boards and condos in a hard position of needing on one hand to fulfill their statutory obligation to continue to pay their bills, while also on the other hand, considering the circumstances of unit owners, some of whom we all know are in serious financial stress right now. The truth is that most condos are just not going to be in a position to offer financial relief to owners who are encountering, encountering financial difficulty. And in those cases, liens will need to be registered in order to secure the arrears for the benefit of all other owners in the condo. For the vast majority of condos, this is going to be the financial reality. Um, however, in light of the exceptional circumstances we're facing during the pandemic, there might be other options for some boards to consider where their owners are struggling. But again, this is going to completely depend on the financial position of the condo. And again, most condos won't be in this position. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm only going to give two examples, but I note that we do have a detailed post about this on our blog. If you want to get some further ideas, that blog post is called COVID-19 and Condo Fees, and you can find it on the DHA Condo Law News blog. So the two options I'm going to get into briefly today in the interest of time would be first for the condo to consider entering into a payment plan arrangement with the individual unit owner. So the owner would be required to make payments in accordance with that payment plan agreement. And then if they fell into default of that agreement, the corporation would then take steps to register a lien at that time. Um, if that's something the board wants to consider, condo should reach out to their corporate counsel for assistance to make sure that the agreements contain language that will protect the condo's lien rights going forward if an owner does fall into default. We note again that all owners have to be treated equally. So if this option is made available to one owner, the board's gonna have to consider that multiple owners might want to enter into this sort of arrangement and you'll have to consider that. Uh, the second option, uh, if the condo has some sort of contingency or accumulated surplus in the operating fund, the board might be able to consider a one month holiday on condo fees for all owners. And that might assist those who are struggling. But again, some, most condos are not gonna be in the position to offer this. So ultimately, it's going to be up to the board of each condo to make a decision about what's most appropriate for their community, depending on their circumstances. But regardless of what arrangements are put in place, uh, condos just have to continue to meet their statutory obligations regarding liens, even during COVID-19, even during these difficult times. So regardless of what uh, arrangements are made or put in place with owners, I think the main takeaway is that action has to be taken to preserve any lien rights that exist when an owner falls into default. And uh, over back to you, Nancy. Thank you, Jessica. Okay, and uh, we still have about 15 to 20 minutes worth of questions to go, so we might run a wee bit, maybe five minutes or so over time. So we'll jump right back over to Jolly Jim with declarations and bylaws. Jim, you're muted. Just give us one second, Jim. There yeah. you go. Thank you, Nat. Sorry, I'll, I'll try to be as quick as I can here. Um, so I have two more questions, both dealing with bylaws. The first question is essentially for an older condominium declared prior to 2001, so in other words, prior to the uh, uh, 1998 Condominium Act coming into force, is it necessary to consider new bylaws? And my short answer to this question is in my view, yes. First, you will need one or more new bylaws for certain reasons. Most notably, you need a standard unit bylaw if you want owners to be responsible to arrange insurance covering their unit improvement. So that's one important reason. 
Also, bylaws are necessary or will soon be necessary for a number of other matters, such as, I'll just list some examples, providing proper indemnification for the directors and officers, which of course is extremely important. It's one of the most important provisions in your bylaws. Allowing for electronic attendance at meetings and electronic voting. Uh, this is gonna be necessary once the pandemic emergency comes to an end so that you need bylaws for those purposes. If you want to add director qualifications beyond the qualifications in the act, like requiring that all directors be owners, that needs a bylaw. If you want to extend the owner's responsibilities for the corporation's deductible in the case of insured damage. Another example, if you want to establish mediation and arbit arbitration procedures for certain disputes with owners. If you want to authorize director's re remuneration, that needs a bylaw. If you want to authorize emergency access to the units, this is soon going to require a bylaw or a provision in the declaration. If you want to authorize the corporation to appeal realty assessments on behalf of the owners, that needs a bylaw. If you want to authorize borrowing, that needs a bylaw. If you want to limit the rights of non-residents, non-residents to use the common elements, that can be done by bylaw. So there's a list of some examples some reasons why you might need a bylaw. Second, there are some reasons to clean up and improve old bylaws. For instance, I think it's a good idea to get rid of old provisions that are no longer consistent with the Act because those sorts of old provisions can create confusion. I also like to get rid of bad provisions like those protection of directors provisions, which look good, but are in fact bad. There are also some helpful provisions that can be added to the bylaws, including payment provisions for common expenses, like requiring post-dated checks or pre-authorized payments. A provision stating that common expense payments are applied to the earliest arrears to allow for lien deadlines to be rolled forward in some cases. A provision setting a reasonable interest rate for arrears. Updated provisions respecting meeting procedures. Uh, setting up a staggering of director's terms. So those are all good reasons for bylaws as well. So the bottom line is as follows. Condominiums can actually get away most of the time with lousy bylaws, but good bylaws are necessary for some reasons and are a good idea for other reasons. Okay, Nance, here's my second question. Um, our condo building does not have a standard unit Definition. This was something I talked about just a moment ago, standard unit bylaws and other ways to have standard unit de definitions. What problems can this create for the corporation for individual owners? If there is an insurance claim, for example, it is often one of the first things asked for. What are the repercussions of not having a standard unit definition? Just a terrific question. My short answer to this question is, Every condominium needs to have a standard unit description. If a condominium does not have a standard unit description, at least one court has said that this means that there are no unit improvements. Or in other words, everything is standard and must be insured by the corporation. In my view, that's also how the act reads. So I think it's really important for every condominium to have a standard unit description and it's why the, the insurers are asking to see them. For condominiums declared prior to May 2001, as I just said, the condominium must pass a standard unit bylaw to create a standard unit description. Now, a default standard unit description is supposed to be added to the Act sometime soon, but that default description may or may not make sense for a given condominium. And again, in the meantime, all condominiums need a standard unit description. For condominiums declared after May 2001, under the, uh, the 1998 Act, in other words, the declarant is required to provide a standard unit description, but sometimes those descriptions are not clear or complete. In any case, a standard unit description can always be amended by bylaw, and some condominiums are considering amendments, such as amendments to remove certain high-risk features like flooring, baseboards, cabinets, and vanities, and making them unit improvements so that the owners have to take care of insuring them. Um, 
So those things can be removed from the standard unit descriptions in order to take pressure off of the condominium corporation's insurance. Um, so there you are, Nance. Those are my comments on bylaws under the current act. Fantastic. And I've been checking out our attendees and it looks like so far we're hitting most of the questions from everybody who's here. So this is good. From those who are here, it looks like we're hitting all those questions. So I'm just thrilled with that. So next we're going to turn over to Dancing David, who's going to talk a little bit about uh, some festivities. David, over to you. Thank you, Nancy. My question is actually very fitting for this time of year. Um, it is, is it okay to use the announcement slash loudspeaker system to play Christmas music in the background on Christmas Eve? The person who submitted this question indicated that there is a desire to play Christmas music to brighten residents and owners during these difficult COVID times. Um, well, firstly, I must say that this is a very creative idea and kudos to you for trying to think of ideas to brighten everyone's spirits during a very, very different Christmas. And uh, personally speaking, I would love to have background Christmas music automatically played in my house on Christmas Eve. So feel free to drop by. Um, but for condominiums, however, using the announcement system to play background music, background Christmas music may not be workable for every community. Uh, as some of us may know, the announcement slash loudspeaker system in most condominiums is used for emergency situations like a fire. So this is where our first concern would be. If the announcement system is in use for playing Christmas music, it may cause difficulties or outright prevent an actual emergency situation to be relayed to the owners and the residents. Another concern uh, we would have would be the possible inability to turn off the music. Now, as far as I know, most emergency systems of this nature cannot be turned off, turned off outright. You, could pro you may be able to lower the volume, but turning it off might not be an option. This then would be concerning if there are owners or residents, um, I, and I know there, there are likely people out there that feel this way, who may not like or do not want Christmas music played, but then are forced to listen to it because they have no way of turning it off. So, you know, in, in this day and age, we want to make sure that we're looking out for everyone, such as the Grinch, by the way, the Grinch wouldn't like Christmas music. So you might have a Grinch living in the neighborhood. You never know. <laughs> so you want to make sure that we're looking out for those people as well. Now, I think though this idea in its essence is a good, is a good one, but you don't have to use the PA system to spread Christmas cheer like this. I know most of us have used Zoom, like right, right now we're using Zoom, at least once this year. And some condominiums have been using Zoom for their AGMs and it has worked out extremely well. If a community wants to share background Christmas music, using something like Zoom would be a great option because it spares the emergency systems so that they could be used for emergencies and allows owners and residents to opt in to hearing the music. You can even make it into like a community event where people can mingle and say hi to each other. Of course, it doesn't meet, uh, it doesn't beat meeting in person, but at least it's one way so that we can connect with our neighbors. By the way, Zoom is not the only option for this type of endeavor. Now, like personally speaking, I've actually used another service called Google Meet. It is similar to Zoom, but it's free. You'll need a Gmail account, obviously, but it, you can have up to 100 participants and their current time limit for meetings is 24 hours. So that's also another option for boards to consider. And there are, of course, other services similar to Zoom and Google Meet as well that are out there. The good thing about these services, obviously, is that you can also uh, participate by phone. I believe we have one participant by phone today. And this is then another way for owners or residents who may not have a great internet connection to connect by phone, listen to music, and connect with their neighbors. One other option that I want to raise is especially, especially for those communities that may have more tech-savvy residents who are willing to assist is streaming. Uh, you can stream Christmas music on YouTube or um, I don't know if some of us may know this, but Twitch, it's, I think it's for more younger people, but those services allow streaming of music so that residents can simply click, click on a URL uh, just like they would click for a YouTube video or whatever and stream it on their phones, their computers, or whatever device they're using. 
It's very user-friendly and it works and it's just another option that is available. So in summary, unfortunately, we do have concerns about playing Christmas music through the PA or loudspeaker system, particularly if the system is used for emergencies, but there are definitely viable alternatives out there that would achieve the same goal. Thank you. Fantastic, David, thank you. And I can say that I've participated in Zoom bingo in Zoom um, watching Scary Movie Night on a Friday night with about 30 other people uh, and Zoom trivia. And they've all been super fun. So there are lots of ways to connect with your community. And so I would encourage you to think about some of the ideas that David had if you're thinking of going that way. Now we have one last tricky issue to deal with and we've got Caroling Christie to tackle records for us. Now she may not sing for us, but she plays a mean piano if you ever get the chance to hear her. Christy, over to you. Definitely not singing. So <laughs> just gonna make that clear now. <laughs> um, my question is, can an owner be declared a nuisance owner if they request a large quantity of documents on an ongoing basis? Um, certainly I can understand where this question is coming from. Uh, that said, as most of you are aware, there's a prescribed process now for making requests um, from condominium corporations of records. So owners can request records by completing a prescribed form. And then the board is required to respond to that, uh, to that request. Um, generally speaking, as long as the owner is following the prescribed process, so they're completing the form, um, they're entitled to a response from the board and they're entitled to the records that they've requested that are not otherwise um, exempt from the requirement to disclose. Um, notably, owners are no longer required to provide a reason for their request, so they can request um, records for any reason. They don't need to explain it. And there's no particular limit in terms of the number of documents that they can request. So it's definitely conceivable. And I know many of you have experienced uh, requests for large volumes of documents. Ultimately, the answer is that the board, the corporation does have to respond to the request and probably in most cases is going to be required to produce the documents that have been requested. Um, that said, the, the process, the current process that's in place for getting documents requires that uh, when the board responds to the initial request for records that the board provide a cost estimate to the owner with respect to how much it's going to cost for the, the corporation to put the records together. And that includes costs to redact as well as costs of copying if that um, applies. So in other words, if an owner makes a large volume request um, the board can then respond to say, okay, we'll pr provide you with those records, but it's going to cost you X dollars. And then the owner must pay that in order to um, actually get access to the records. So that may or may not be a bit of a deterrent for some owners who are sort of making the request for improper reasons. Ultimately, if um, the board doesn't respond to the request in a way that the owner likes, they can bring an application to the condominium authority tribunal. Um, for an order for production. And they can also seek a penalty if they, if they so choose. Um, if the owner's purposes in, uh, in making the request, the original purpose in making the request are legitimate and their motivation in making an application to the Condominium Authority Tribunal are, um, they have uh, good intentions in terms of making that application, um, then likely it will proceed. But I think it's important to note that um, the Condominium Authority Tribunal does have the ability to dismiss applications in a summary way if the tribunal finds um, that, I just want to get the wording right here, uh, either the subject matter is frivolous, vexatious, or that the application was not initiated in good faith, or that it discloses no reasonable cause of action. So if an owner is making the request um, basically abusing the process in making the request and that there's they're not making the request they originally didn't make the request in good faith and that they're not advancing their application before the cat in good faith then the cat has the authority cat is the condominium authority tribunal um the cat has the authority to dismiss the application uh without a hearing and so you can move uh before the court you can make a request to the cat that the cat uh, dismiss that application um, in a summary fashion. And those, the, the tribunal's authority in that respect are reflected both in the Condominium Act as well as in the rules that are applicable to, uh, to the tribunal. 
um, it's also notable that if somebody is particularly vexatious, so if they're making repeated applications to the tribunal for disclosure of records, um, the tribunal has the authority to have that individual declared vexatious before the tribunal. And what that means is that um, that individual can no longer, no longer has the right to go to the tribunal for an order for disclosure of documents. What they have to do is they have to um, uh, they will have to get the permission of the tribunal before they can make their application to uh, disclose records. So long story short, probably in most cases when an owner makes a, a request for a large volume of records, in most cases, probably the corporation is going to have to simply respond to that request. Um, but if there is uh, bad faith behind, behind the request, um, that may be something that ultimately, if it goes to the tribunal, can be addressed at the tribunal. That's it. Thank you, Christine. Okay, folks, those were all of our substantive questions. Uh, we tried to get to as many as we possibly could. I know that there were some that we couldn't get to. So hopefully we'll see you guys all again in the new year soon with another Q&A with DHA. We'll have to think of another fun theme. In the meantime, we have one last item to address and that is our competition. So I am going to launch our poll now and the polls should be launched. It's in front of you now. Go ahead and vote on the festive ensemble of your fellow DHA people, your team here. We have people who are trying to up the ante. We've got some additional joiners. We've got Lucy joining in. We've got Logan and Brianna joining in. So go ahead and vote. Go ahead and vote. Oh, we have an early runner. Lucy, keep those hands up. We have an early runner here, folks. I think I know who's going to win this competition. We know what you need to do to win these, these shows these days. Now, folks, also a quick note, if you have a festive sweater, I'm going to end the polling in, in about 10 seconds. But in the meantime, if you have a festive ensemble and you want to join us on screen for a snapshot, uh, throw your hand up and Ali is going to promote you to panelist. No obligation, of course, but if you happened to get dressed up today um, or dressed down, you never know, whatever your choice may be, throw your hand up and we'll go ahead and bring you up on screen. I'm going to end the polling now and we're going to see what creates the winning results in the festive scene. There you go. You need a Lucy. We all need a Lucy. Congratulations, Melinda and Lucy. Very well done. Very well done. Thank you again, everybody, for joining us here today. We hope you enjoyed it, and we look forward to the next one. Have a great and happy holiday season. Take good care. <laughs>